I turned to my friend who I was watching the Oscars with, and I'm like, we have that. Will Rogers exists and has existed for, for I think, 80 plus years at this point. You know, it just kind of felt like there was an entire half to this industry that got ignored and it left me with a bad taste in my mouth. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America completely dedicated to the movie theater industry. Joined today by our co-hosts, Rebecca Polly, deputy editor at Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the chief analyst at Box Office Pro. Guys, welcome once again to this nice weekly conversation that we have. A lot of things to go over. We've got the Oscars. We've got the biggest weekend during the pandemic at the domestic box office. But I guess before we get started, how are you feeling on a Monday after a very packed news heavy weekend for the domestic film industry? Well, it's Tuesday. (laughs) That says it all right there. (laughs) (laughs) Another week, another battle here in the exhibition industry. Mm. You know, I've recovered. The Monday after the Oscars is always a bit under weather because they never they never stop on time. You know, seeing the box office numbers come in and feeling knock on wood like maybe the slate has calmed down a bit. God, I hate to say I'm feeling cautiously optimistic, but I am. You got UK opening in a few weeks. Kind of seems like we might be coming out of this, but we have said that before on this podcast, so... <laughs> Yeah, it's been a strange weekend. I almost wish that Oscars and Mortal Kombat and Demon Slayer had not coincided so that we could, which we will on the podcast, focus on the uh, positive side here. But it's been coverage wise, I think across the industry, very, very manic in terms of uh, highlighting what was actually a very encouraging weekend. And as Sean notes, we are going to be going into all of these topics in this episode. But before we get started on today's discussion, a word from our sponsors, QSC. QSC announces the expansion of the QSYS ecosystem for audio, video, and control with a new cost-effective Core Nano and Core 8 Flex processors. Far beyond a conventional cinema processor, QSYS is a complete ecosystem that allows you to control and monitor audio and video content delivery just about anywhere throughout the cinema complex. Visit qsc.com forward slash podcast for more information. That is qsc.com forward slash podcast. All right, so back to the episode, back to our analysis, Uh, a lot to go over as we've been saying before we just jump right into it, a couple of tidbits in the industry news front. We had a couple of release date changes from Sony, Escape Room 2, the horror sequel, going from January 7th, 2022. That is now being moved up to the summer, July 16th, 2021. Good to see really when we have major studios get some of these titles that were scheduled for deep into this year or next year, move them into the summer. That said, Sean, you did point out that that is the release date for Sony's Cinderella, right? Right. Unless Ooh. they are releasing two films on one day, we're looking for another another shift down the line a bit. I would imagine. Can we say that other shoe is about to drop? Oh, that's, that's on the a, nose That's a right Cinderella there. pun. <laughs> it's good this isn't the video podcast. The glare I am getting from Rebecca right now is enough for us to move on to that other negative part about the release date changes. Yeah. We've got 
And elsewhere on the release date calendar, we had Sony's Vivo, which I believe was either scripted or penned by Lin-Manuel Miranda. That has now been sold to Netflix. That is off of the release date calendar. So good news there, potential bad news and definite bad news uh, all coming from Sony. But hey, little by little in this recovery, which is taking longer than expected, but I think it's safe to say is now underway. Part of that recovery, of course, Rebecca, you had the opportunity to speak with the organizers of Cinema Week at one of our box office live session webinars. Could you give us a quick recap of that conversation and what we have to look forward to? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of other international markets, specifically France, they have a yearly thing. It's a cinema week where tickets are discounted and you're really encouraged to go out to the movies to renew your love of cinemas. It's not really anything that we've had here in, in North America ever. I think people have tried it, but the industry, is, as we've seen so far in 2020, isn't really unified in the way it is in a lot of countries that might have like a state governing board. But anyway, if there's any time to start a cinema week and devote a week to getting people back into theaters, I think 2021 is the year to do it. So uh, this is taking place from June 22nd through the 27th. We're going to have the organizers have studio buy-in. So we're looking at potentially some special early screenings, some special, you know, videos from, from actors, you know, supporting going to the films. But really, it was created with an understanding that there's no one size fits all here for exhibitors. There's no checklist of like, here, this is what the exhibitor is going to do. Certainly, they're not encouraged to provide discounts. It's, it's probably not the right year to go that tack. But yeah, it'll be a week-long event where studios and exhibitors and vendors alike will really uh, hopefully band together and remind moviegoers, hey, the movie theaters are still here. They're open. They've been open. This is an experience that you've missed. And try it out again and see how you've missed it to really bump up that engagement. So um, it's an interesting initiative. It's one that, you know, I'm excited to see what cinemas do with it because there's a lot of room for creativity there. And uh, hopefully we get to see cinemas of all size across North America from the indies to the bigger players come through. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that leads us uh, perfectly into the next part of the conversation. A very exciting uh, night full of tension in Los Angeles on Sunday, watched by people all over the country as the LA Dodgers were up by six runs going into the final <laughs> innings and the San Diego Padres came back to win the game. You said exciting. And I'm like, I know he's not talking about the Oscars. <laughs> this is a setup. And yeah, I, I guess there was also uh, a small awards show that was, according to the New York Times here, seen by less than 10 million people in the United States, unfortunately, mm -hmm. a record low for the Academy Awards. Yeah, it's a little bit unfair to set it up in that way, but I think... Uh, well, like like the Hollywood Reporter piece no came out saying that Nomadland is the lowest grossing Bex picture winner. Like, yeah, of course yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are in weird times, and I think that's uh, an important way to frame this conversation about the Oscars, that yes, it is record low ratings in a year that every awards show has had record low ratings. And of course, even pre-pandemic award shows were seeing big decline in ratings. But hey, nevertheless, this is an opportunity to talk about movie theaters, to talk about movies in the general culture. I've been very curious about how the industry was going to use this platform. I guess 
let's start with the pre-show since it was a bit of a weird year and how the entire show was set up. Sean, you yeah. tuned into the whole thing. What popped out at you from that pre-show segment of the Academy Awards this year? Several things. To me, it was very interesting that the musical segments were kept out of the main part of the show. I think that would have been very beneficial to keeping uh, attention spans on track, especially this year. But really, I think the big standout were the ads from Fast 9 and the big screen is back because... That was something that you know all three of us and countless others in this industry have talked about wanting to see more of in this lead up to more big movies coming out, actually advertising to the masses and not just movie fans and people who work in the movie industry like us. So, you know, from a glass half full standpoint, I thought that was a very positive thing, but it is still very much a it is a very sensitive subject for the Academy to hit on because this is a global broadcast. And as much as we are now kind of breathing a little bit in North America, particularly in the United States and other some other countries are seeing that recovery, there are still plenty of other markets that are still very far from this kind of progress. So it's a tightrope that they have to walk in and will have to walk for some time. That's a great point. It's difficult to say that movie going is back when movie going is only beginning to come back here in the United States, as we know, even in the domestic market, a country like Canada still has a large portion of those screens dark for the moment as their own vaccination rollout is going slower than expected. I have to say, though, I mean, Sean, I, I also really liked the, the F9, you know, return to theaters spot. The big screen is back video was, you know, presented by Matthew McConaughey, and it was very in support of people who work for theaters and clips from upcoming releases. And we have seen both studios and exhibitors, you know, share that on social media. So, uh, you know, it's exactly the thing that we talked about, Daniel, in last week's episode that we want to see here more, which is talent and filmmakers really standing up in support of the film ecosystem. That said, I didn't watch the pre-show. So I didn't get any of that until YouTube the day after. With the, the Oscars numbers being so low, I, I gotta imagine the pre-show numbers were lower than that. Throughout the entire three-and-a-half-hour Oscar ceremony, there was one mention of movie theaters. And it wasn't from a presenter. It wasn't anything scripted. It was an impromptu from Frances McDormand, one of the people accepting the Best Picture Award from Nomadland, saying, you know, go see this movie on the biggest screen possible. See all these movies on the big screen. And I was just kind of, I was a little bit peeved. The theaters really didn't get mentioned other than that, to, to be completely honest. Granted, with the understanding that the way this year's Oscars were structured, as Sean, as you mentioned, there were no songs, there were no montages, there were barely any clips, there was no really presentational aspect. It was very serious. You know, you didn't have people launching into speeches other than the people winning the awards. So, so I get that. But at the same time, we had two Herschel Humanitarian Awards this year, and one of them went to an incredible deserving organization, the Motion Picture Relief Fund, which provides relief to people in, you know, working in the film industry. And I turned to my friend who I was watching the Oscars with, and I'm like, we have that. Will Rogers exists and has existed for, for I think, 80 plus years at this point. You know, it just kind of felt like there was an entire half to this industry that got ignored. And I it left me with a bad taste in my mouth a little bit, honestly. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't happy about it. I mean, none of the people who were nominated, none of the winners, none of the people in that room would have been there if not for movie theaters. And the movie theater industry is going to survive, but there are people and there are companies who are hurting and who are holding on by their fingertips right now. 
And I loved a little, you know, tip of the hat actually during the ceremony and not in the pre-show as much as I really was moved by that. The big screen is back video. I think that's a, that's true. Yeah. I think that's a fair assessment. I would be very surprised if the Grammys or the Tonys didn't have segments in the actual broadcast of the show themselves. Well, the Grammys had the Grammys had the performances taking place in shuttered music venues to show those right. off and to remind people of how great they are and to pay respect and appreciation to them and the struggle they're going through. I love that the Grammys did that and there was right. n- nothing really comparable here. And again, I, I would be very surprised if the Tonys don't acknowledge all of the theaters and all of the people that work in the theaters outside of the producers and the performers and the people that put the things on stage, but the entire Broadway industry, the entire theater industry, I'd be very surprised if they don't dedicate at least a mention during the broadcast of that side of the industry. Unfortunately, in the Academy Awards, in, during the, the main segment, because of course we had that great mention of exhibition mm-hmm. in the pre-show aspect of it, I was disappointed uh, to hear only one winner found the time to even mention the state of the industry right mm-hmm. now when it comes to movies and movie going. And we don't need to go into the Chadwick Boseman, what happened there, because there have been so much great written about that and it's you know we have a lot to talk about but if they hadn't scheduled that so the best picture award would have been last the ceremony would have literally ended with Francis McDormand saying go to movie theaters and then howling like a wolf to commemorate uh, <laughs> one of her a late sound designer I believe on Nomadland so yeah I mean props for Francis McDormand I gotta say that's my takeaway there she said something like she grabbed the microphone to say something like Chloe Zhao's speech was over and she was like no I gotta say something about movie theaters here I think the only other thing that counted as an advertisement for theaters during the show was the West Side Story trailer when it said mm-hmm. in theaters mm-hmm. and I'm not gonna count in the heights because we know that's going to streaming so yeah Sean that's a great point in that the Oscars are also a platform to release trailers and to get people excited about new movies that are coming out. Of the trailers that aired, of course, I was able to catch some on YouTube. I was also very excited by a tough musical to put on, like West Side Story, that's not the easiest musical to recreate, either on stage or in film. The Steven Spielberg teaser of a film, I believe that's coming out this Christmas, pushed back by a year, definitely very uh, intriguing for me. And it's one of those few examples of people getting excited outside of what happened during the broadcast about going to the movies and talking about the movies. It feels like that was really the only bit of film culture that broke through beyond the award show itself. Usually we'll have a number of more trailers that come in and generate more buzz. I felt that about In the Heights, though, to be honest. I, I know it's a, you know, Warner Brothers day and date, but just a big crowds of people frolicking in a jubilant summer atmosphere. <laughs> it just hit something in my cerebellum. It just yeah. seemed perfectly timed, like, oh my God, this is what I want to go out and do. I want to go out and swim in a pool and dance around. And I mean, I just was like, this movie's going to make so much money. <laughs> I don't know, Sean, what your forecasts are, but that's, that this no, seems like the point. perfect comeback to the movie summer, you know, spectacle. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, the only reason I wouldn't have mentioned it is because of that day and date aspect. But as we've clearly seen over the past month, that doesn't necessarily stop people from going to the theaters. That's a whole other subject there. But yeah, I mean, I think that as long as it stays in the summer and with what we're seeing already, I think a lot of people are going to show up to see that with like 20 of their friends yeah, in a it's theater. A, it's a crowd movie. I'm not, I'm not yeah. watching a fun musical at home, like alone in my dark living room. I have before in the past, actually. 
as someone who doesn't live very far away from Washington Heights, I can assure you that's pretty much what the Heights has always been during the, even during the pandemic. Not, uh, not very different pandemic or not in terms of social distancing and crowding, but such is life here mm. in, uh, in a very weird year. I'd like to, Sean, if I could transition to, to talk of next year's clear Oscar frontrunner, Mortal Kombat. Ooh. Uh, which, uh, if there's any justice in the world. No, Sean, it had a pretty, uh, it had a solid, solid weekend combined with uh, a little surprise Demon Slayer in there, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think we can safely say this was another weekend that really kind of beat even a lot of optimistic expectations because there are so many different ways to come at this. You know, number one, we had two R-rated movies open at the same time. And before this weekend, the highest R-rated opening during the pandemic was Nobody with six million. And both of these movies did more than that in their opening day individually. <laughs> so one additional perspective I kind of look at is if Mortal Kombat is making 23 million in one weekend, then okay, what was the last similar video game movie that came out with kind of a similar audience? So I'm not going to count Sonic mm -hmm. or Pikachu right. because those are very famous. Like a Resident Evil type? Right, or Rampage, which was kind of the one I was looking at, which was in April three years ago. And that's another Midway adaptation from Warner Brothers, right? In the same IP right. family when Warner Brothers purchased this video game studio. Exactly. And that opened to 35.8 million. That was three years ago, but it also had a big star in Dwayne Johnson and a PG-13 rating. So the fact that Mortal Kombat is, you know, relatively speaking, not that far behind a $36 million opening of a film three years ago with very different audience demos, at least in some capacity. That's very encouraging. Now you combine that with the overlap that it had with Demon Slayer, which really came out of the gate and I would say was not really on a lot of radars even just a few weeks ago, except of course for our own Russ Fisher, who talked about this really looking like it was going to do well because of some strong pre-sales that came to fruition and it became the highest opening anime film in North American history. And I believe the highest opening foreign language film, regardless of the medium. So yeah, all in all, I mean, just really a lot of great takeaways from this weekend. For Demon Slayer, it had some of those premium amenity upcharge in its corner, too. My understanding is it actually it did pretty well in some of those uh, bells and whistles premium formats. And those are formats that are very hard for a film like this to have access to. A film like this usually mm -hmm. doesn't have access to this type of auditorium. It's one of those great opportunities, right place, right time, where it was able to get those upcharge auditoriums because of the holes in the market. We've been saying this for a year or longer, that there are going to be opportunities for the right movie by the right distributor to come in and take what would be a niche performer and overperform because of the market conditions. When we look at, them, at the weekend as a whole, it is the biggest domestic weekend in the pandemic, 56.8 million overall. The first time we have more than 50 million at the domestic box office since the beginning of the pandemic. You have the first time where two films in simultaneous release can bring in over 20 million respectively. I think that's a huge benchmark to hit. You mentioned that 23.3 million for Mortal Kombat. Demon Slayer coming in at 21.1 million. That's a massive, massive boost. Sean, 
How does this set up the coming weeks? Are we looking at another sort of lull in the release calendar, or can we use this as momentum heading into the summer? I think the answer is yes to both, because we're just very, almost exactly like what happened after Godzilla vs. Kong came out. Studios are letting these big releases breathe a little bit, essentially have one event tentpole film per month for the next couple of months. It was, you know, it was Godzilla, and now it's Mortal Kombat. And we're going to have a few weeks in early May. Guy Ritchie's movie will be coming out. And the uh, Spiral, the Saw spinoff, say that three times fast, <laughs> will be coming out in the middle of the month. Which that could do pretty well, especially now that we see what R-rated movies with a mainstream profile can achieve. And then we get to Cruella in a quiet place over Memorial Day. And to me, that's, you know, even before this weekend, that was looking like the next big marker. And now... Mm -hmm. I'm even more optimistic. I really hate using that word because you never know what can happen these days. But I think the momentum from these two movies right now really sets up May to deliver some more good news. And, and once we get to that holiday, we're off and running into it'll be a different summer. No questions asked. It'll be very different, but it will be a summer of some sort. I mean, given that Demon Slayer, I, you know, sorry for going back to this, but it's something that I'm, I'm curious on and I'm interested to hear your take on it. Given that it's a specialty title, Given that it is, you know, a, a limited release, I don't, I don't know how many screens it was in, but what do, do we have any data to predict what that drop is going to be? Because over the past few weeks, when a film is successful, we've seen a very modest drop, but with something like Demon Slayer that maybe has, you know, a smaller core of people who are interested in the property, do you think it could be like the people who wanted to see it saw it? Or could we continue to see that word of mouth? I mean, really, I, I ask this because I'm not 100% sure on the what the word of mouth was from Funimation, the marketing from Funimation, like how this happened, other than the fact that I'm very glad it did. Do you think it's going to hold well? It's tough to say. I think a lot of the success can be attributed to the grassroots campaign they had with the fan base. On top of the fact that it, you know, it already had that organic aspect of being Japan's biggest movie in history months ago. So I mean, it was a big headline and continued to right. be like. Yeah. And so any anime fan that was out there and ready to go back to a theater was probably itching to go and see this. Now, historically, usually anime releases are very, very niche and very front loaded in North America. Probably the best example most recently was the Dragon Ball Super Broly movie that dropped 70 percent in its second weekend after opening to about 20 million in its first five days. So, you know, instinctively, that's kind of the obvious comparison to make and maybe the expectation to have for Demon Slayer. But that was two years ago when there were a lot of movies in the market. There aren't a lot more movies now. It's it's really, it's kind of Mortal Kombat and Demon Slayer are now the high profile movies out there. And maybe, maybe that in a sense helps expand the audience for these kinds of imported films. Because in the middle of a pandemic, when there isn't a lot of new content, people are going to hear about Demon Slayer's opening and maybe go and give it a chance. So numbers wise, I would say it's safe to expect a very sharp drop. I think there is definitely that fan element to consider, but maybe it can have a little bit longer life than it would have ordinarily had it not opened right now. One of the things we have to also look at is just how far anime has broken through in popular culture. We're all, I, I hate to reveal this on the podcast, we're all in our mid-30s here uh, on the panel right now. When we were kids, we really didn't have that many anime titles that were established mainstream. Um, Sailor Moon, Dragon Ball Z, right. Naruto. Pokemon. Yu-Gi-Oh! <laughs> was 
Yeah. Yeah, Pokemon to an, Pokemon to an extent. Yeah. In Mexico, we had a title called Caballeros del Zodiaco, the Zodiac yeah. Warriors. Uh, I don't know how it, what it was named here in the U.S. that had broken through. So it was something that you were beginning to see. So much has been able to break through just because of right. the advent of digital distribution and, and online. I mean, you can go on Crunchyroll. There's always been all this stuff, and now we have access to it, and it's a... It's, it's a lot more mainstream. It's an expensive... Right. In, I mean, it's a lucrative, let's say lucrative industry. Absolutely. Well, it's an entire generation that's grown up with it. I mean, we're talking about parents now passing down their interests in all of these, you know, 90s and early 2000s franchises to their kids and going to see even an R-rated movie like Demon Slayer. I mean, I've heard so many accounts of like of some younger audiences going out to see this with their parents. So it's it's interesting. Did you guys have an anime title that you're personally attached to from your childhood growing up? Or do you still watch anime now? No, I I was never connected to it as a kid. I honestly, I've had a hard time connecting to some of the like, you know, quote unquote canon, the big title. Some of them I've just watched and I I don't, I don't connect to them, but I really, um, (laughs) I really liked your name. I really liked weathering with you. There's the odd title uh, that I connect with, but I'm not... I wouldn't call I'm myself similar. a fan. Yeah. I think the Miyazaki films are really the ones that always stand out for me mm-hmm. just because he had such a great track record and they were coming out as I was like a teenager and into my 20s. So it was very much the hot topic for anybody kind of following film at the time. So I would not classify myself as someone who is deep in the know on anime by any means. I would dare to say anecdotally, we might be in the minority now, you know, for people growing up here in the United States, even around the world. I mean, in Mexico, for me, growing up, there were a couple of titles that broke through. The one I watched was a soccer-themed one, Super Campeones, which that culture around that soccer-themed anime title is still very relevant from a lot of current soccer players now. They usually reference it, and it really broke through as part of a global culture. I think it's only increased substantially since then. And uh, I'm mm. beginning to see that at the box office, where admittedly, I think because of mm. that, I hate to say generation gap for people our age, but there is a certain generation gap of things that are on our radar, tracking, looking at things in the market. And I think it's fair to say we were surprised by the performance here, but looking at the track record, it might be something that sticks around. The potential's there. I mean, you have Fathom has a longstanding relationship with Studio Ghibli to put out their films. You know, I feel like regularly there's a Fathom Studio Ghibli event of some kind. But then even event cinema distributors are are putting out these films that are based on anime properties from Japan. And they're ones that I've never heard of. I look at them and I'm like, I don't know what this is, but they are being put out. They are making money. And I think it's because they are relying so much on a grassroots fandom-based marketing that if you're not in the know, you're not in the know. Mm, so, right. you know, I think that that potential is going to grow. I mean, it, it almost, it's a niche programming, just like a faith-based. I mean, something can come along, a faith-based film and make bank. And if you're not kind of tuned into that type of film, you would look at it and say, I don't know what this film is. I've never heard of it. <laughs> it's, right. it's one of those types of situations. And I think as uh, maybe exhibitors look for ways to diversify their programming slate and maybe make themselves less beholden to a few big corporations, I think, uh, you know, there's definitely potential there. Yeah, I think it'll be an interesting thing to track in the coming months and years as we see these audiences that we 
considered at one point to be niche, really breaking into a bigger, bigger part of the mainstream. And as pop culture continues to evolve with the proliferation of different streaming platforms, how the television industry is changing, all of these other details in the media ecosystem, we're now seeing the impact of that at the box office. It's going to be a very interesting story to follow. As you noted at the beginning of the podcast, Rebecca, it's not that movie theaters are coming back. They have been back. There's been a lot of people in this industry working tirelessly to make it a safe and fun experience for people not only in this country, but around the world. It's good to see that the messaging around going to the movies is finally ramping up. So thanks again, Sean and Rebecca, for joining us for another episode of the Box Office Podcast. We will return next week with another edition. So please tune in. New episodes drop on Thursday. Thanks again to our advertiser, QSC. And if you like us, don't forget to rate us, review us, leave a rating. That's the best and easiest way to make sure we can continue bringing you this podcast. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro and in collaboration with Record Edit Podcast. Thanks again. <laughs>